Welcome back, everybody, and here we are at episode 15. Hello, Father. Hello, Christine. Good day. Good day. I'm well. I'm very well. Thank you. Yes. Good. And Liverpool won, so you're extra happy. I am on fire. Yeah, yeah. It's really <laughs> getting tense there at the top, so... <laughs> oh, well done. Well done. Um, so today we're going to be moving into Chapter 2, but before we do that, Father, do you want to start us with a prayer? Yes, yes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we bless you. We thank you for this wonderful time of Lent this season of purification, of repentance, of conversion of heart. We ask for your grace uh, to continue this beautiful journey in the church. We ask for a receptivity and a docility to this message of John Paul II, uh, that this will become truly a culture of life in our hearts, in our families, in our communities. We pray through the powerful intercession of Mary, our Blessed Mother, Saint Joseph, our beloved patron, and of Saint John Paul himself. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. The Father, and the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Yes, I need to apologise. Last week, I completely forgot the prayer because I got so excited about the rugby. <laughs> oh dear, that's my weekend taken care of again, which is great. So, um, in this episode, we are moving on to historical man. We've been exploring for the past 23 catechesis original man and the original experiences, and now we're moving into this state of being after original sin, historical man. So this is, is even more pertinent to all of us than perhaps the original experiences appear, even though, of course, they're very pertinent to us as well. So we're moving on to try and understand this notion of historical man. And so the scripture passage that John Paul II offers to us for this analysis is one taken from Matthew, and it's from Matthew 5, 27 to 28. And so the phrase in particular that John Paul II wants to look at is this one from the Sermon on the Mount, specifically where Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, and then in brackets it says in a reductive way, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And here we're pointed to the footnote in the text because it's important here that we, we understand what's being said um, when this word, um, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, because <clears throat> desire in and of itself is not necessarily a wrong thing. It's not necessarily morally wrong. Um, we know that everything that God created is good. So sexual desire and sexual pleasure are in and of themselves good. But it has the capacity to become negative and wrong when a man or a woman fail to see the other in the totalness of their being, in the fullness of their personhood. And we spoke a lot about this in our analysis of original man where man and woman were able to look upon one another with the peace of the interior gaze and see the whole person 
and appreciate the whole person and not just focus on bodily dimensions of a person. So what we're looking at here is this notion of desire. If it's reducing a person to an object of pleasure, then it's, it's completely and totally wrong. And that's what John Paul II is explaining. And he says that of this passage, he says that this particular passage from Matthew has key significance for theology of the body. And he says that it brings about a fundamental revision of the way of understanding and carrying out the moral law of the old covenant. And so, of course, it's always important to read um, these passages in their context. And we know that prior to the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then Jesus goes on to say, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. So this fulfillment is really what we're looking at in this passage from Matthew about desire and adultery in the heart. So the fulfillment of the law that Jesus is bringing means that we're not called to merely obey external rules. Do not do this, do not do that. To basically tick a box, um, to say, well, I haven't committed adultery, tick, so therefore I'm a very good Christian. No, it's not that. What, what Christ wants to do is transform not our external actions. He wants to transform our hearts, our minds and our wills. And this is the fulfillment of the law that he is bringing. So it's no longer as a Christian sufficient to simply say, I'm good because I haven't committed adultery. To be a good Christian means that we have to constantly work on purifying our hearts, our minds, our wills and our intentions, not just looking at external actions. And so John Paul II goes on to say on page 227, we thus find ourselves at the heart of ethos, as it could be defined, the inner form, the soul, as it were, of human morality. So the soul of human morality, the heart of human morality. It's not just avoiding doing a bad thing. It's all about conditioning our hearts and our minds to be in full harmony with the will of God, um, to transform our inner being, not just our outward external actions. And it's this transformation that makes us then more fully human, more fully the humans that we are created to be. Because we are now fallen, we're living in this historical state post-original sin, we need to, in some way, attune ourselves to those original experience, to try and recapture that essence of the peace of the interior gaze so that we don't um, devolve into treating one another as objects for personal pleasure and that we treat one another as the full dignified beings with the dignity that each person deserves. And so we're not to apprehend the moral teaching of the church as rules and regulations, which is so often the view that people have. But really what they do is they are, they are there to enable us to become more fully the images of God that we've been created to be, to help us to manifest in our relationships this peace of the interior gaze. And so Christ is shifting the focus in this passage in Matthew 
into this further dimension, this more profound dimension of the human person, where he's making his appeal to the inner man, to what's going on inside us. Father, do you want to add anything in there? Yes, uh, Christine. And thank you, you know, for that uh, very clear uh, presentation. And it is, it's beautiful, really, um, this, uh, this section um as we've as we've seen the the middle part if you like of this famous triptych of john paul ii's um first part of his catechesis and absolutely christine as you say the real um i think the key takeaway from audience uh, 24 and 25 which you know is like an introduction i think um of this section <clears throat> then leading into the man of concupiscence it's if you like it's it's bad news and good news you know the bad news is that we are in a fallen state and that is very sad and very tragic and my goodness me we don't need much you know um empirical evidence of that in our culture today you know i mean in the name of sanity so we are seeing the ravages of that um, fallen state and the tragedy <clears throat> and the suffering and the hurt that we cause others and that we cause ourselves because of this tendency um, to sin and this, you know, tendency to lust. Um, so that is the bad news, if you like, but the good news is even better that Christ has come and so right down the middle of that historical man is Jesus. And the Sermon of the Mount represents this transition and um, between the Old and the New Testament, and the Old and the New Covenant. And John Paul II is really homing in on this. And as you say, you know, it's really about the, the transformation of the human heart that the the old covenant, um, you know, the old law was good, very good. And it uh, provided social harmony and religious order, if you like. But what Christ comes to do and what he came to do is far more fundamental. And so what I have is just to flesh out, as it were, um, this teaching, there's some wonderful quotes, you know, from the catechism of the Catholic Church. One is um, <clears throat> here, it says that um, in catechism, paragraph 2842, it is impossible to keep the Lord's commandments by imitating the divine model from outside. So that is, in a sense, the old law, the old historic law. That has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart in the holiness and the mercy of the love of our God. And then just a, a second quote that I think is very powerful. And this is Catechism 1963. According to Christian tradition, the law is holy, spiritual, and good, yet still imperfect. Like a tutor, it shows what must be done 
but does not of itself give the strength, the grace of the Spirit to fulfill it. And so I think that really gets to the nub of this um, this teaching of Christ and JP2 um, in this historical man, that the situation is bleak of our human condition. There's no doubt about that. But the good news that Jesus offers through the Catholic Church, through the sacraments, you know, through Our Lady and the intercession of the saints, through adoration, that power <clears throat> and that transformative grace is available. And that will transform the very desire so that over time we don't desire that adultery uh we're not lusting for uh women in that way in that reductive way and so i think fundamentally there's um there is great good news you know in this in this text and, and john paul ii will will further delve into that now maybe just one final quote um uh, Christine, because this is tricky, you know, it's this tricky, we desire freedom, but we know how cunning the human heart can be, you know, and so there's a real, I think, tension, you know, that we that we have, and we'll, we'll come to that later in, in Romans 7, this divided heart, um, and so this quote that I use often, you know, in in talks again from the catechism 2342 self-mastery it says is a long and exacting work one can never consider it acquired once and for all it presupposes renewed effort at all stages of life and so um, there's that, uh, I guess, dynamic tension between grace and our surrender, our trust, our effort, our faith, you know, that God can transform the heart. And so some beautiful examples. I remember reading, you know, not that long ago about St. John of the Cross, and he was in this cell. And I think this, this poor prostitute jumped over you know, and sat kind of next to him. And you're kind of thinking, wow, you know, this would be a real moment of um, temptation for him, you know, um, and possibly the desire to flee, to run, but he didn't. He stayed and he, he sort of chatted and he ministered to this woman, you know. And so it just shows you the heroic level um, of the transformation of his heart you know, that he wasn't flustered, he wasn't tempted, you know, he was in possession of himself through extraordinary amounts of mortification, no doubt fasting, purification of that inner man, you know, that he wasn't overcome. And so the saints are radiant, glorious examples of that battle, you know, there's no plastic saint in the catholic church um i think that was even one of the was it the apologetic arguments maybe of c.s lewis uh of, of gk chesterton rather becoming a convert the saints in the catholic church attest to the truth 
and the power um, of this teaching of Jesus, you know. And so we don't have to be burdened by our desires. We don't have to capitulate, you know, to the standards of the world and the dreadfully pornified culture that we're all operating in. The grace of God does help us to rise above that, you know, and particularly these beautiful gifts, the sacrament of reconciliation. What a beautiful time in Lent, you know, to uh, to avail of that extraordinary gift. It's it's an encounter as if it was with Christ. As the church fathers say, you know, what was present in the life of Christ has been transferred into the mysteries of the church. And so the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, we receive that gift of divine life. I mean, that is extraordinary. That is an extraordinary moment of transformation. And the sacrament of reconciliation, again, this complete cleansing of the soul, this complete reordering um, of our desires, you know, and our vision, uh, blessed are the, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the good news is really there, Christine, for us to, to grasp and to, uh, wow. to really just allow ourselves to be immersed in what the church is offering, what Christ is offering, and, and indeed what what's going to happen. Yes, that's brilliant, Father. I also just want to add in before we close, we, we brought in the word ethos here and just to make clear what we're talking about when we're talking about ethos. Um, it's defined as a disposition, character or fundamental value peculiar to a specific person, people, culture or movement. Mm -hmm. So we're talking here about this new ethos that Christ is proclaiming this transformation, this um, transformation of the disposition of the person to um, hearken back in a way to those original experiences and in particular original innocence. Um, and it just reminded me of the words of Jeremiah, you know, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God. Yes. Um, which is just beautiful. And I'm just looking to see if I had anything else that I wanted to add in today. Um, yeah, I think just what we've said before, really, that here in this chapter, Jesus is explaining that we as historical man, we know that creation is a gift and that we within creation are a gift. And that's how we're called to look upon one another, not to appropriate one another for selfish purposes, but to see each other as a gift that's our actual origin story um so yes i think that's all of my comments for today father is there anything else you want to add in no just um just maybe a word you know the the example uh, that, that jp2 gives in um audience 25 is um the famous encounter that we know of king david and bathsheba and he quotes it just briefly um, in, in paragraph three. Um, and it's from, you know, 2 Samuel 11. And this sort of famous scene of, of King David, you know, um, walking on the rooftop of his palace and seeing uh, this beautiful woman bathing, you know. Um, and this 
again, this concupiscent, uh, this lustful look. And I mean, I guess really this is a call for for the men, you know. I think concupiscence certainly does, definitely does affect men and women, but in slightly different ways. I think men are, you know, um, visually stimulated. And so JP2 is saying that, that it's, and this is a quote here, such a desire as an interior act expresses itself through the sense of sight. And so that really is, um, I guess, for men, you know, this traditional Catholic um, teaching of custody of the eyes, you know, that we recognize the burden of concupiscence. And so rather than fall into adultery of the heart, you know, custody of the eyes is a, a remedy, if you like, uh, for that temptation. You know, we see a beautiful woman or a, an attractive woman and because of our fallen nature, we're not yet able to say, gosh, you know, glory be to God the Father for creating such um, a beautiful creature, you know, and echoing that sentiment of Adam, you know, in, in, the, in the garden. And so because of that, custody of the eyes, you know, is a helpful remedy. And I guess there's, there's a lot more we can say on that. I think for women, it's more of the emotional arousal, you know, and that is perhaps the um, tragic success of these erotic novels, you know, uh, that, that women are um, aroused in a slightly different way, you know, according to their femininity. And so... I just say that because it's important, you know, as we say, we're in this time of Lent um, and this time of, you know, reflection, maybe an examination of our conscience, you know, and to to really come to terms with um, these vices, you know, that we all suffer under the, the vice of lust and that purity of heart, that purity of the gaze, um, yeah, to, you know, to, to really have a radical assessment of ourselves. How can I uh, begin to grow in self-mastery? You know, how can I gain that, that sense of being in possession of myself so that I'm more able and more free to give myself as a gift? So there's a lot, there's always a lot in this, in this teaching. There certainly is. And we're going to be going over this in a lot more detail over the coming yeah. years as we yes, go yes. through historical man. So I'm sure we'll, we'll circle back on all of these topics in future episodes. But for now, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Christine, again. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> it is. And we'll see you all again next week. Thank you. God bless. God bless.